Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know how many of you know this, but I am a closet Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy fan. I have been since as long as I can remember. If I am home between 7 and 8 p.m. on any weeknight, you will always find me with the TV on, tuned in to Jeopardy and Alex Trebek, and even more, Wheel of Fortune, Pat Sajak and Vanna White. Jeopardy is challenging for me because I usually only know about a third of the answers. But one of my favorite categories in Jeopardy is what they sometimes call the common bond. And they give you a list of three different things and then you have to answer by saying what these three things have in common. So let's try it this morning. I'll be Alex Trebek and you all can figure out what these items have in common. The first one, a map, a fish, and a weight loss clinic. A map, a fish, and a weight loss clinic. They all have scales. Very good. Woo! See, that's what happens when you sit in the front. You get these answers. All right, great. Great job. All right, second one, a nail, a car, and a golf ball. Rose. They're all driven. A nail, a car, and a golf ball. I think I heard somebody else saying that back there too, right? Yeah, okay. And a third one, a boat, tug of war, the nightly news. Boat, tug of war, the nightly news. Marlon, they all have anchors. Ah, very good. What a sharp group on a hot day. Okay, now this one's a little bit harder because this one has four common bonds. Four. What do these four have in common? Matthew, the tax collector, the hemorrhaging woman, Abraham, and the synagogue leader whose daughter had just died. Rose? Their work is never done. That's probably very true. Yes, Brian? Characters in the Bible, also very true. Not what our Jeopardy judges are looking for, though, but very true. Yes, yes, we hear it from two different things. They all had faith. Excellent. Very good. Kevin and Sue come out with the answers. What the answers were that our judges were looking for is that they all had faith in Jesus and in God. And now, faith is an interesting thing. Because faith isn't something that probably any of these four people were born with. It's not something that you just get. It's not like being pregnant. You either are or you aren't. And it's not like having the chicken pox. It, either you've had the chicken pox or you haven't and you'll never get them again. And it's not like riding a bike that once you understand it, you'll never lose it. Faith is probably the reason all of us are here today. But it's interestingly also probably why all of us need to be here today. Faith is accepting that we do not see, faith is accepting what we do not see or what we hope will happen 
what will come to pass, even if reality says it may not. And in Romans today, a pretty thick chapter, as often Pauline writings are, but in Romans 4, Paul tells us that it is the conviction that God is able to do what is promised and to do the impossible. Such experiences of faith happen when we pray for safe travels for someone or an insight to a very, very challenging dilemma or crisis in our lives or even healing for sick people. We have really little control over them, but yet we hope for the best and ask for God's power to be offered. But faith, at least our faith, usually is a very fluctuating thing. It's never constant. There are days that I am full of faith and confident that all will be right with the world and that I can totally trust God to do what is right. And then there are days that I have to ask aloud in my prayers, God, where are you? Are you here? And interestingly enough, sometimes those days can come back to back. Faith is not a once-and-done deal. It's a journey. It's a journey that we accept when we enter into the initial stages of faith, but the one that we continue to travel along over our life. And it's one of the reasons that we gather for corporate worship. We gather so that our faith can, in fact, be strengthened, so that we can encourage each other on our faith walk, and so that we can share and hear some of the real-life experiences of faith from all of us. Now, the stories today have much to show us. They demonstrate people, as Sue and Kevin said, of tremendous faith in the Bible and how they're willing to put it all on the line. The tax collector, Matthew, who had, I imagine, a pretty lucrative career. He probably did pretty well for himself. And just all of a sudden, one day, Jesus walks by and he says, come follow me. And he left his office, he left his desk, and he was gone with Jesus. And then the synagogue leader who left his own daughter's funeral, those flutes playing and things that were read in Matthew, that's a sign that the funeral was actually going on. He left his own daughter's funeral to go and find Jesus, to ask him to come and raise his daughter from the dead. And then the hemorrhaging woman the woman who was willing for 12 years, who wasn't able to go out in public, but finally was willing to risk it all to go out into public, to be ridiculed, to face banishment, and to even risk other people's safety because if she touched them, they would become unclean. She went out in public and did something unheard of. In fact, according to the law, illegal. She touched a man, Jesus. And, of course, there was Abraham, who was called by God. It was the first time we're introduced to Abraham. And all of a sudden, this voice from God comes and tells him to leave his home, his country, his family, to go to an unknown place. And all of this blessed on a blessing for future generations that seemed very preposterous to this 70-some-year-old man. Now, in many ways, these people are ordinary. Nobody said that as far as the common bond, but it's also true. They're very ordinary, but they have amazing faith. And as I read these stories over and over again this week, I confess that I found myself jealous of such people in times. 
I find it difficult or incredibly challenging because I wondered if I have that kind of faith. How on earth, I thought, am I supposed to be inspired by these stories when reading these stories actually made me feel even less faithful, even weaker in my own faith? But aha, we forget. It was Abraham, too, who had moments of unfaithfulness when he claimed Sarah to be his sister to Abimelech, when he had a child with Hagar, Sarah's maidservant, because he didn't quite trust what God had promised him. Is this the same man who Paul, uh, Paul upholds in Romans as the great faithful one? This past year, I attended a leadership workshop at Laurelville called Values-Based Leadership, and there are a number of different leaders there from across the church and even broader than just the Mennonite church. And one of the speakers was a president of one of the Mennonite organizations here. And he shared with us his feelings on what it was like when he first took on the presidency of this organization. He said he would walk into the office every morning and he would sit down and wonder, what am I supposed to do today? What does a president do? And then he would say, am I really cut out for this role? I have no idea what I'm supposed to be doing today. I have no idea how to be a president. But when it came time for a meeting or a conference call or even typing up some emails, he put on that presidential persona that he hoped was the right thing, and he did his best to be the president. I sat there and listened to this man whom I have seen in his presidential role for a number of years. And I was surprised because I never would have imagined the amount of doubt, self-doubt, and questioning and sense of impossibility that he experienced in his life. And he went on to explain that this phenomenon is called the imposter syndrome. And in fact, it was interesting because almost all of us who were sitting there we're sitting there going, uh-huh, I know what that's like. That first day of the job and first week of the job, whether it be a teacher or a nurse or whatever, I don't know what I'm exactly supposed to be doing, but everyone's assuming I do. And so we kind of feel like we are an imposter in this role. Because the, the workshops were multiple days, I had lunch with this president one day during the workshop, and I told him how helpful this understanding was of him and this acknowledgement. And I said, how long was it after you became president that you felt as though you were no longer the imposter president, but actually took that on as yourself? I was expecting him to say two or three weeks. He said, at least two years, until he believed that he himself was supposed to be president. And so for two years, he wasn't fully confident in himself but he kept putting himself out there. He kept trusting those who had put him in that position. He trusted that they had made the right choice. If we look closer at our Romans passage, we see that actually little is said about Abraham's faith. John Tays, a commentator, writes that he points out that the emphasis is actually not on the quality of Abraham's faith 
nor is there an explicit appeal for us to be like Abraham. But what the text tells us, what the text tells us about Abraham is that he had unconditional trust and gave glory to God. Abraham put his total dependence on God. As I reread the Romans text, my comfort came back to me. Rather than making me feel guilty or scared that maybe I don't have enough faith, I read in Romans that faith is more a statement about God than about us. The point of the text in Romans is that the fulfillment of the promise that was given to Abraham is based on the power of God. Even more important than Abraham's faith is God's faith, God's faithfulness to us. Faith is defined as much by God as it is by Abraham. Because despite Abraham's messing up a number of times, God still held out that promise of blessing to him that had been given from the very beginning. God could have backed out. God could have said, you don't deserve it. I'm tired of this. But God didn't. In many ways, God had more faith in Abraham than Abraham had faith in God. And so the only appropriate response to God's faith and grace in all of us, because I believe in reading this text in Romans, that the same faith that Abraham had in, that God had in Abraham is the same faith that God has in you. Because we trust that God has the same faithfulness, even against all the odds that we might put in front of God. That's what Abraham did. That's what the hemorrhaging woman did. That's what the synagogue leader did. That's what the tax collector did. You see, they accepted the faith that God and Jesus had placed in them. And then, through grace, they were willing to trust God. Suddenly, faith seems a lot more possible when I realize that God has taken the first steps with me. Suddenly, the pressure isn't so much on me to succeed. And if I don't succeed, if I mess up, which I will, I don't have to worry that God will abandon me. The promise to Abraham is the promise to all of us that God will not leave us. God will not forsake us, even during our times of faithlessness. I'm amazed still at the faithfulness of these people, the risk all of them took to find Jesus, to follow God, to now know for sure, to not know for sure what would happen. How do I live knowing that I have faith, but sometimes things that I ask for in prayer don't come about as I've asked? I've reached out my hand to touch Jesus' robe as he's walked by, and I have not felt the healing power. How do we live with this reality? Perhaps we take a risk every time we pray. I can't say that I am 100% confident in my prayers, but I am confident, says Sue Monkhead, in the fact that the one to whom I am praying is listening and hearing our prayers and holding them and using these prayers to help us learn 
that inside each of us is a loving, divine power that heals and guides. Perhaps that's what the story of the hemorrhaging woman was really about. Maybe it had more to do with her ability to see inside her the loving, divine power than some magical touch that Jesus had to offer. Jesus gave her the freedom to touch him in a public place, a place that society had made her unclean. Jesus' healing may have been more social, more of an acknowledgement of her making her whole than taking away the flow of blood. Sue Monk Kidd goes on to say, in the midst of pain and crisis, God is drawing us into wholeness. I prayed often for the faith to believe, to see that in my experience, God was parting the fibers of my being. I struggled to trust that the whirlwind I was riding was a sacred opportunity, that it wanted to take me somewhere. End of quote. I'm not saying that those of us who are not healed or don't get what we ask for merely don't have enough faith. But perhaps our understanding of the healing process or the guiding process is nearsighted. After all, Abraham never got to see the full culmination of the blessing and the promise that God had given to him. He died before those generations and generations even came to pass. And part of faith is asking those tough questions of life and the tough questions of God. I don't think you have I don't think you ask the questions if you don't have the faith. Spend time with any child between the ages of four and nine and listen to them talk. They ask questions constantly. Why, why, what is that, what are we doing? Wanting to understand more. And our questions of faith remind me that we are in fact called to a childlike faith, to ask questions like a child, but also to believe and trust like a child does too when he or she receives an answer, sometimes without knowing at all really what it means. And like children, we learn from our mistakes, and we watch and imitate those around us who are more mature in their faith, asking the questions, looking for the answers, accepting what answers you do find, and learning from our mistakes are all part of that journey of faith. We are called to be faithful And we realize that the journey of faith is something that requires work. Now, I have never run a marathon, but if anybody has, you don't just decide it the day before the race. It takes months and months of training. And training for faith is like training for a marathon. We become faithful not by trying harder, but by training harder. And Henry Nouwen suggests three ways to draw closer to God, to become a better trained person of faith. Reading the scriptures every day, opening up your Bible, the words of Jesus and the message of God shape us into holiness. And taking time every day for quiet time with God, taking time to listen and taking time to talk to God, confessing our sins, will lead us closer to that journey of faith. And thirdly, now, and suggests finding a spiritual guide, a director, a mentor. 
it's helpful to have a guide to help us determine what is God saying to us amidst all the voices we hear in this world. Part of our work to be faithful is being open to respond to God's graciousness and work in our lives. Eugene Peterson was quoted in in an interview that I love. He says, the assumption of spirituality is that God is always doing something before I know it. So the task is not so much to get God to do something I think needs to be done, he says, but to become aware of what God is doing so that I can respond to God and participate in God's work and take delight in it. This is, in fact, what God called Abraham to do. This is what, what the people who followed Jesus were called to do. We are to become more aware of what God is already doing. Sumon Kid said, this is the motivation behind faith. We must place ourselves in the posture of the heart, in the stillness that enables us to become aware of what God is doing so that we can gradually say yes with our whole being. So I invite you this week to position yourselves. Watch your posture. May it be open to faith. Allow yourself to enter into faith. Because God has begun the process. The hard work is done because the first steps have already been taken by one greater than us. God is looking for us, the faithful already. Now... We need to respond. And may we respond by reaching out to accept the one who is already being faithful to us. Amen.